0: You are listening to Red Hawk Media from the School of the Arts at Indiana University Northwest. The following program is a production of Lumpen Radio, WLPN LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. More information at (laughs) lumpenradio.com.
1: I-94
2: on Lumpen Radio.
3: Hey everybody, welcome once again to another edition of I-94 right here on Lumpen Radio. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I am joined as always by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Morning, Jamie. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with the author Bob Hartley. He is a Chicago native, though I believe right now he's in Pittsburgh. He has a new book out called North and Central. It's out on Tortoise. Bob, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thanks for having me. Bob, this is a uh, kind of a neo-noir uh, book, and I, I, know I happen to be a big fan of crime fiction. I kind of wanted to start off with the time period that you chose to set this book in. Now, I'm assuming you grew up on the west side of our city in the 1960s and 1970s, but was there a reason you chose to set this around 1978,
1: 1979? Yeah, well, I... Uh... As you mentioned, I did grow up in the '60s and '70s in that area, so I'm familiar with it. But also, it was an interesting time in that there was a great cultural and economic shift going on in that neighborhood, um, as as I think the the book um, elaborates upon. And just the, uh, the the unease of that and the anxiety that it created in almost everyone I knew living there. So um, I think that winter uh, epitomizes that, that anxiety, that, that unease that was going on. Yeah, and for and people
3: that's who, what yeah just, just to elaborate for people who are not in Chicago, what Bob is referring to was a transition of that neighborhood from, as I recall, majority white to majority uh, black, Latino. Uh, it was part of some of the great white flight that this city has seen.
2: It was Austin.
1: Yeah, that's
3: correct. Yeah, in Austin. Is yeah. that
2: is that the infamous right, right. Jane Byrne winter?
3: 1978. I yeah, believe it was, Bob. It? I wasn't here in 1978, but wh- that no, was No, no,
4: 79 was the
1: great blizzard, right, Bob? Is it when they didn't Right. Pilot? Well, it's, it's I believe it's set in 78-79 that winter. Oh, okay. And that was the great blizzard. And what's occurring is also that was the winter of, the, of John Wayne Gacy where they discovered that he had murdered so many young men. And um also that the, the, the uh, transition of the neighborhood was, was going to occur if it wasn't in the midst of occurring. So it was going from, primar- again, primarily from Europe- pre- it, the descendants of European immigrants to an African American, primarily an African American neighborhood. And also there was the demise of Zenith, which was uh, the major uh, employer of the area, which uh, manufactured uh, televisions. So uh, a lot of things were culminating at that time. I actually
4: have a a Zenith radio that was my grandfather's, a tube radio made in Chicago. It still works.
3: Yeah, the tube radios were great.
4: Yeah, I listen to Sox games on it.
3: Yeah, (laughs) it's still good. You know, Bob, the reason I actually asked you was because um, I I also write crime fiction. Uh, It's kind of a family business. And one of the things that has been frustrating about writing crime fiction set now is cell phones because it takes away so many things that you used to not be able to get away with, you know, with, with phone tracking and with the fact that you can be much more easily located. And I didn't know whether that played into your decision to focus on that period at all.
1: No, not really. Because, um, I was more interested in that, that time period simply uh, again, more from an economic and social standpoint than anything else, than, than than a technological one. Okay,
2: that's that's one thing that I really liked about the book. So to be clear to listeners, this is an, a novel, North and Central, that that Bob wrote, and uh, all this stuff is it, it's it's there in the background, like the you know the uh, uh, the bar is where. Or a bar is where most of the action takes place. The t- story is told by a bar mm-hmm. owner. Zenith workers are, provide a lot of the business for the bar, bar owner, um, and there's there's all this stuff that's kind of briefly mentioned uh, about you know the workers starting to lose jobs, and uh, there, there's a line in there I think it's about like a mayor losing their job for not plowing the streets, which I think was a reference to Mayor Byrne, um, and so you have like all the uh, the socioeconomic factors of the city, but it's just—it's just a background set for the main story because your main story really pushes, moves hard. And
3: of course, it's set in a bar that um, we—I think today we would call a dive bar. You know what I mean? It's—it's it's definitely catering to uh, working class, lower working class, some some down-and-out drunks as well.
2: It reminds me of uh, uh, the bar on. Ashland and 43rd, it's been there forever. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I Back do. of they, the have yards. The, they have the lunch
4: special. Yeah, the lunch yeah, special?
2: yeah. yeah. I, I mean, there's a million bars in Chicago like, like yeah, that. I can't yeah. think of their the names. Yeah.
4: Bob, I wanted to ask you something. Um Obviously, from that neighborhood, I think you did a good job. You know, we don't hear a lot about, like, the decimation of the working class in America anymore. You know, everything we don't talk about. We like to talk about class on here, and you, you've... Portrayed a very specific class of people. We're in Bridgeport, um, the radio show, and we, you know, this area had that similar demographics, which is also changing, but it's it's getting more expensive um, yeah. in that regard. I were you immersed in this? The, this is how you grew up. I mean, What did your mom and dad do? I was just curious because you seemed to really. I, I grew up in a blue collar. We all grew up in blue-collar houses, and I think you had a, you really nailed that era and the the language of that of the working class because a lot of people have a hard time doing that.
1: Yeah. Well, my dad worked for a small bank, and uh, actually in Berwyn, and it was a family-owned bank, and um, he worked for them. And uh, but before that, he had worked as uh, actually. He sold insurance door to door. And before that, he worked for the streets and sanitation department. And uh, so he had done a lot of different jobs. Um, My mother worked for uh, United Charities as a a typist, really. Um, And but pardon me. But the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, most of the people I, I grew up with were in the trades or worked in a factory or uh, were, you know, work for the city, uh, as it, you know, the person across the street from me, I grew up, I grew up in uh, central Austin on Chicago Avenue. And, uh, I grew up in a street called Menard and right across the street was a bar that was owned by, uh, it was owned by this couple. They had 11 children and lived upstairs in a two bedroom <laughs> apartment. They were uh, my family's best friends. And the father was a police officer, so he couldn't own the bar legally. So the mother owned the bar and she ran the bar. So that gives you an idea of the kind of place that I grew up. Uh, and the, the bar that I, I based I used in the book was a bar I actually went to. It was open till four o'clock in the morning. They had a four o'clock license, so it was open till five on Saturday. And it was, you know, it, you could have like just really down and out alcoholics. Um, there were factory workers. There was all kinds of people that went in there and including myself. And, uh, I attended a bar for like 16 years. Mm-hmm. So it, I had that background and that's where it comes from. Uh, I'm, you know, the, it, when I read Nelson Algren, it was the first time I thought, and I was, a, I think I was 15 it was the first time I thought, well, I can actually write about people around me. Were you, are you because talking about I had never really more? experienced that before. You know, I was like, oh, oh I, can, I can write about the people around me. They're interesting. You know, they don't have to be from the middle class or upper middle class or affluent. You
4: know? Well, that's we're losing a lot of that these days with MFA programs because you have to have money to get an MFA. Generally, I'm general, speaking in right. general terms. And it's it's always nice to read a, a novel based on the working class that's not completely stereotypical.
2: Yeah, well, it, well, thanks. It, it, you you were talking about Jeremy how um, how it nailed it, how believable it is, and I think that's a testament to to good fiction writing. You know, I was in it. I, I, I'm not going to ask you about, but it, it it makes a reader think that did, did this is this autobiography. You know, because it's 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 you're so immersed in it. But Bob, I, did you rob a currency exchange? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
4: But I did want no. to ask. <laughs> a lot of
2: the uh, a lot of the language that's used is uh, uh, not politically correct, and you know it's it's well, it's, it's how accurate it, it,
3: for the seventies I would say. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Right. Yeah. I don't say that as a condemnation. I say that as like, thank goodness, it, this is being written this way. This is what it actually feels like to be in this city at, in, in in these circumstances. But I was wondering if you got any heat uh, for that from you know publishers if you
1: um no actually i was lucky with this publisher cool cool because he he uh, uh jerry Brennan his name he, he runs tortoise books and he's more interested in in publishing books that he likes to read to be, be to be honest with you yeah so he started reading so well wow, this voice is really strong it's an interesting story so he published it and he worked on it with me a bit and uh but there was no censorship of language. Oh, there was cool. no attempt to censor it. Was this and your first shot? I just shot? wouldn't do it. I'm sorry? Was this your first shot? Submission? First submission? Second? For uh, for Tortoise, yes. I wrote another book called uh, Following Tommy. Uh, it was published by Surveina Barber Press uh, out of Boston. And that was about um, basically a teenage gang. Uh, that uh, terrorizes an African-American family that moves into the neighborhood. They're the first African-American family that moves in. It's called Following Tommy. And it's about these two, it basically it's about two brothers who, the older one is uh, is really a, just a sociopathic criminal. But his brother, uh, they, through economic, because of economic dire straits, uh, they have been petty thieves. And the younger brother, goes along with it un- until this occurs where they start are terrorizing his family and he has to decide what he's going to do. And that's that's about blockbusting and about the panic peddling that occurred and the redlining and and all of that that occurred in Austin and in other parts of the city. Yeah. And uh, actually other parts of the country, you know, that was common.
3: Yeah, it wasn't just in Chicago. Um, oh no. We're, we're speaking with the author Bob Hartley. Uh, he's got a new novel out called North and Central. It's out from Tortoise Books. Real quick, we'd like to give uh listeners, a chance to hear Bob's words. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and we want to thank a kind of murderer's row of musicians uh, this week. It's Makai McCraven, it's Search and Research, it's Ben Lamar Gay, all providing the music, and many thanks to International Anthem Recording Company. One little piece of business we here on I-94 do not censor, but as a terrestrial radio broadcast, the FCC says there are certain words we cannot use. We have been forced to omit some of those words or bleep them out from Bob's book. You can find out what Bob said in its entirety by picking up the book yourself. We'll be right back after this short excerpt from Bob Hartley's North and Central.
0: It was six o'clock before I finished cleaning and stocking. I always did the books last. Next to the register, I kept a piece of paper with two columns of hash marks, one for six packs and the other for drinks. I pulled the bank and counted the difference. I kept three 38s hidden, one at each end of the bar and another behind the register. I never left them there. There'd been a lot more burglaries lately, and the last thing I needed was to be shot with my own gun. I put two in a plastic bag and one in my pocket. I put the night's take and the list into a bank pouch, grabbed the gun bag, and went down to the basement. The safe was toward the front of the building close to an old coal chute. Next to it was a card table with a few folding chairs around it. On top of it was a long-sleeved flannel shirt and a pair of gardening gloves. The safe was in the floor. Years before, the place was burglarized and they'd taken the old one. My mother thought it was so heavy no one would be able to get it up the stairs and out the door. She was wrong. So she'd had the basement floor broken up and a safe dropped into it. She said that if they wanted it, they'd have to bring a jackhammer. I opened the safe, pulled out the IRS ledger, and put it on the table. Then I put on the shirt and the gardening gloves and opened the old coal chute door. Inside was a big pile of black chunks and dust. I pushed my hand into the pile until my arm was covered with coal and I felt the plastic bag. I grabbed and pulled. Inside the bag was the second ledger, the real one. I took it out of the bag and threw it on the table. I took off the gloves and shirt. I sat down and added up the six-pack money and then the drinks. I took it from the pouch, wrapped the wad with a rubber band, and stuffed it into my pocket. I ripped up the list into small pieces and put them in my pocket too. I always flushed anything that could be used against me. Then I counted the rest and entered the total into the IRS book. I put the cash in a deposit envelope, licked it, sealed it, and put it back into the pouch. I closed the book, opened the other, and entered the total amount of Saturday's tape. On the inside flap of the book was a pocket with some envelopes. I spread them out. Under each flap was written 100, 50, 20, or 10. I never wrote anything else on the envelopes. I didn't need names. It was 1978, it was Chicago, and it was Austin. Everybody, from the local juice loan guy to the neighborhood priest knew the way the game was played. And even though the bar wasn't making near what it used to, I still had to pay those guys their money. One hundred went to Jerry, who bumped it up to his district commander. Fifty went to the liquor control people. Twenty went to fire, health, building, or any other inspector who might come by looking for some trumped-up violation. Ten went to random cops for hauling away drunks or bouncing the occasional jerk. But I rarely had anybody busted. My mother taught me that anybody can have a few too many and have a bad night. Unless they were always causing trouble, you wanted them to come back. They can't spend their money if they're in jail.
3: And that was an excerpt from Bob Hartley's North and Central. Once again, thanks to our reader, Shanna Van Volt. North and Central is out on Tortoise Books, and you can pick it up at any library or quality bookstore. Bob, we actually haven't gone into the plot of this book. We've kind of talked about the general... um, sense and an aura around the time you're talking about. But the story is, as Mike mentioned, about a bar owner, um, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that he has a health problem that is going to become fairly significant and he drives him uh, to go into crime. And what is interesting about this is that his best friend is a cop uh, who becomes his partner in crime as well, uh, but also because, uh, as you point out in the book, the people that seem to be purchasing the goods from him also seemed to be cops and and the residents of that neighborhood. Could you talk a little bit about this? Um, I wouldn't say it was a a cynical take on our our law enforcement personnel, but I, I thought it was a fairly realistic and interesting look at the kind of people that made up this lower working class Milo in the 1970s at a time of real desperation in the neighborhood.
1: Right. Well, again, what I try to do is actually capture what it was like then. And that includes the police. And um, so I'll give you an example. Um, I used to go to this bar and it was open till four o'clock in the morning. And it was very common to walk in and see police officers in uniform playing liar's poker on the bar. They were gambling. (laughs) And it was also common for them to park their squads in the back while they were on duty. So they were drinking, they were gambling on duty. Uh, One of my favorite stories to illustrate what was going on is that uh, one night I was sitting at the bar and the bartender, his name was John, and John came up and asked me, he said, do you have anybody you don't like? And I said, no, John, I pretty much like everybody. And he put a 38 revolver in front of me and he said, it's 50 bucks. The numbers are shaved. And I said, no, John, I pretty much like everybody. That's okay. And he took the gun away. He did this in front of police officers, oh. <laughs> you know. And so there was that. There was also, it was a common thing. Uh, well, one more story. And I'll leave it at that to, to give you an idea how common the corruption was. Um, a friend of mine, his mother was a nurse. And she moved to Atlanta when in the late 70s. And she was pulled over by the police in Atlanta. And she was driving with a friend of hers from Atlanta and she took some money out of her purse and her friend said what are you doing and he said she said i'm gonna give him some money and she said you can't do that and he said she said well he can always not he just say he doesn't want it so it was so common to bribe the police that that's that's what occurred she was so used to it that you often would take a five or ten dollar bill and wrap it around your license and then <laughs> the police would look at the police officer would look at it and say, well, if he doesn't want it, he doesn't have to take it. Yeah. You know, so he can give you the ticket, but that's how, how common bribery was also, you know, the Somerdale scandal of, I believe it was 61 in which the police did become burglars, you know, that did happen. They did become burglars and they did it because one of the police officers was friends with a burglar. He, he had been friends with them in high school. He saw him one day walking down the street, and he stopped the burglar and he said, "You know, we like nice things too." <laughs> you know that that
2: makes me think of a. There's a line in in the novel about um, the cops doing a, a crappy job for crappy pay. I don't I don't know if it still can. I think they make decent salaries. No, they make now. decent money now, quite a bit actually. But and there's a there's a big uh, hullabaloo about about cops working other jobs. Uh, now and and not having to check in with the city and you, uh, there's, there's some stuff about that in the book, but, um, what I, what I wanted to get to, what I wanted to ask was Jamie had mentioned the, uh, Huntington's disease, which, which Mm -hmm. our bar owner, Andy has, uh, and it being the catalyst for getting involved in crime. I, the way I read it, I kind of, I felt like it was, um, it was fuzzy whether or not Andy was a, a hustler before that. You know, like I thought, Andy was really interesting to me. I didn't, I couldn't tell if, he, well, he he was, he was trying to be good, but he often got in himself into these these bad situations, and I just was wondering if you if you wanted to if you purposely made it unclear whether, uh, it was it was the disease that made him go bad or if it uh, if he just always kind of had it in him.
1: Well, yeah, I don't think he. I think. Um, it's kind of it's it's interesting because for me it's interesting because that's good that it was ambiguous, and the reason why is because it captures that neighborhood again, huh. because you're always on the cusp of it. You know there is uh, an example is a, 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 I was back in Chicago a couple years ago for a reunion for a for a high school reunion. No, I'm sorry, pardon me, for a grade school reunion. Huh. And this guy had read my book and he said, you know, my dad used to collect, uh, produce loans. And so he was connected with the, with the outfit, you know? And, um, he said one day he was uh, this friend of mine, this, this guy I grew up with, he he said that he was in with a friend of his in a bar. And this, this mob guy came up to him and said, Hey, aren't you so-and-so's friend, uh, son? And he said, yes. He said, well, if you want, you want to make a hundred bucks. And he said, for what? And he says, well, I want you to go over to diversity and Laramie, get this guy out of a, a, out of a gas station and bring him to me. <laughs> and he said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> and he said, well, you're not your father's kid. And he walked away. And he told me, he said, all I had to do is say yes. And I would have been in with in with them for the rest of my life. Well, it's interesting. I'd still because, be with them
3: because the, the group of people that you're talking about i think one of the things that maybe for modern listeners is a little difficult to understand you know the police department is now a multi-racial multi-ethnic group of people when at mm. one time it was largely white and male and right. all the people you know we've had a number of books on this show i'm thinking of a murder in canaryville many of the people who were the police and the mafia or the crooks and the cops they came from the same background yeah. they grew up next mm-hmm. to each other they knew each other Um, And, you know, there was always some suggestion here in Chicago that things were, in a sense, a little simpler back then because of that. I think that's naive, but it it bears noting that at that time, the pool of people was also a lot smaller. You know, the, the police and the criminals sort of had an uneasy understanding because after hours, it seemed to be at that time, everybody just everybody was off work and that was it. Um, and so there was a lot right. more fraternization than I think we would expect today.
1: That's correct. Um, the, at least, it, you know, the, the book is at the cusp of that going away. Words, that, that's, that's, you know, I mean, it, it's, uh, every, if you look at it, like everybody's losing power in the book. And they're all desperate in some manner. So uh, the, but it was true, for example, there was a place um, called Hogie's Pub. It was on North Avenue and it was uh, close to uh, Elwood Park. It's, so it's further up close to like uh, to around Harlem and North. And we used to go in there and it was a family run pizza place. And we'd go in there because we we drink beer and have you know have pizza and it was you know it was low key, and I don't know if you do you remember the actor named Robert Conrad?
3: Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Robert Conrad, you know, he's a big star of the time and everybody knew him, who he was. So Robert Conrad came in there, and we were all thinking what is Robert Conrad doing all the way over here? I mean, it's okay place, but why is he here? And he, he walked right back into the kitchen. Later on, we found out the reason why he was there is because the Pogies Pub was owned by Michael Spolatro, who was a member of the outfit.
2: Oh, he's and He was friends with him. Him, him. He's the one. Him and his brother were buried in the cornfields, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, casino.
1: So yeah. we didn't know it was owned by the Spalatros, but uh, and we were just there to have pizza and beer, you know. So it's and and it, later on, it was discovered, or, or so the rumor went, that Michael was selling cocaine out of the back of the place. Oh, Robert, was a Robert Conrad was going for a fix. <laughs> and Robert Conrad was his was his friend. I mean, they were really close friends. That's why it was there. So it it's that they were, you know. And it, but if you went into that place, you would never think, oh, this is a a, a mob front. Yeah. You would never think, oh, Michael Spilatro owns this place. You you just wouldn't think that. But it was there, you know. So um, it's not surprising that that you would have that kind of fraternization going on, you know, and that that the world would would meld together so so much, you know. Yeah. It just that's the way it was. It's not like that anymore, obviously, but but it was then.
3: We're speaking with the author Bob Hartley. He's got a new book out called North and Central. It's out on Tortoise Books. We're going to take a short break to remind folks of the people that make this station possible. When we return, we're going to hear another excerpt from Bob's book, and we're going to continue our conversation with him about North and Central right here on I ninety four. You are listening to WLPN LP Chicago one hundred five point five FM. This is Lumpen Radio, and we'll be right back. <music>
0: And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Under the Central Street Bridge, there was a large dirt patch, a deserted spot separated from the rail yard by a tall chain-link fence. The only way in or out was an access road. The Reverend parked the squad at the mouth of it to stand watch. Jerry, Fatboy, and I soaked the truck with gas, splashing the stuff everywhere, staining our pants and shoes. The fumes burned my nostrils and made my throat raw. We rolled up the thick wads of newspaper and lit them. The yellow flames made our faces glow. We threw the torches in. A blue wave spread over the inside of the truck. Soon, clouds of black smoke poured out and flames rose until the whole underside of the bridge was lit up orange. We trotted back to the squad and got in. As the Reverend pulled away, he rolled down his window. Jerry said it was too cold, but the Reverend said he was tired and the stink of the gas was making him dizzy. I'll wrap this thing around a pole, he said. As we drove back, I got this heavy feeling like I'd been pounding spikes all night. I couldn't keep my eyes open. I fought sleep. It was a fight I couldn't win. But right before I gave in, I heard Jerry laugh. Word spread quickly. Within a week, I'd sold TVs and VCRs to half the cops in the district. And even though they were always talking about the Japanese stealing their jobs, the Zeniths couldn't pass up on the Sonys and Toshibas. I was sure I'd have the rest sold by the end of the month. But even where I lived, there were cops who played it straight. And on a cold Wednesday in mid-December, one of them paid me a visit. Frank Olson was a lieutenant, by-the-booker who was always hassling somebody about something. Behind his back, the other cops called him Adolf, and when he'd passed, they'd click their heels. I'd only seen him once before. When he first transferred into the district, he'd stopped in to try to catch guys drinking on duty. He did, but the commander told him to lay off, and he never came back. Until now. Except for Railroad Bob, the place was empty. But bad old Adolf Olsen just stood there waiting to be noticed, like he would walked out of a cop show. His coat was pressed, and his badge was a mirror. His shirt was bleached white and starched. He had his cap tucked under his arm. His head was a cinder block covered with a field of gray cut close to the scalp. He just stood there, right inside the door. And as he surveyed the room, he gave the place a look like it'd give him a disease. Railroad Bob looked up from his booth. There's no situation a cop won't make worse, he said. Shut up, Bob. Adolf said he needed to speak with me in private. I said we could go talk in the back. A payoff was a long shot, but I grabbed a hundred from the till. We stood in the back stairway. One door led to the alley and the other to the garage. He stood between them and gave me a look. I hear you're in the VCR business, he said. Somebody's telling stories, I told him. Really? Yes, sir. He pointed at the door to the garage and said, what if I open?" He had me. I could holler about a warrant, but we were alone. He'd just trump up some probable cause and bust me anyway. Even when you're pretty sure a cop can be bribed, you have to be careful. They don't like to be reminded they're criminals. And the others don't like to think about the criminals they work with. If you ask, and the cop gets pissed off, he'll tack on charges. In a second, you can go from a guy who ran red lights to a cop beater. Before you know it, you'll be buried so far inside Cook County that even with the best lawyer, it'll be days before you see the street. I wasn't sure at all, but I had to chance it. Is there any way we can work this out, sir? I made a show of reaching for my wallet, but he just walked right past me and opened the garage door. He switched on the light and looked over all the TVs and VCRs. He knew, and he knew that I knew that he knew. He grabbed a VCR and walked back. Wife's been begging for a nice Christmas present, he said. I was never here. Right.
3: Welcome, everybody, once again to another edition of I-94. As always, my name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And Mr. Michael Sack. hello. And you just heard an excerpt from Bob Hartley's new novel. It's called North and Central. It's on Tortoise Books. And we've been speaking with Bob for much of the previous half hour. Uh, Bob, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and uh, Chicago has changed, of course, so dramatically since the time period you wrote your book in. And one of the things that has disappeared is the neighborhood bar. Uh, many of the bars here in Bridgeport, I think this is a good example, you know, this neighborhood used to have a bar for every, basically, street corner. because parish too, right? Every parish, yeah. yeah. Every religion, every ethnic group, every work outfit had them. Uh, when I moved here in the 90s, um, you still could see very small uh, one-room taverns, two-room taverns uh, all over this neighborhood, and those are disappearing all over the city. Um, You seem to have a great affection for these places, and and I kind of tend to agree with you. Bob, could you talk a little bit about what the allure of these places is?
1: Well, the allure is that they weren't pretentious. You know, I mean, you went in, it was cheap to drink there. It was cheap. You got to know people. It just, it, it basically, people spoke. Their minds, whether you liked it or not, you know. (laughs) The the dialogue Uh, in this book is hilarious. They would say things that were just insane sometimes, but (laughs) you know that's the way it was. So you really got to know people, and it wasn't about networking or uh, you know what what kind of beer you drank or something like that. But although we all drank old style. um, (laughs) It was it was more or less, you know, you're there to drink, you're there to maybe talk a little bit, maybe watch sports. But that's about it, you know. And and, but I think one of the things, the reason why those taverns are gone is because many of them were also running numbers. So a friend of mine's father owned a bar and that's how actually they made their living. They used to run numbers. They would um, you know, there was a game called Boleto i didn't play it but there was and it was run again run by the outfit and that supported a lot of bars there were things that were going on in those bars that actually added to the revenue and the profits that were not put on the books and they also as mentioned in the books many it was common for a tavern to keep two sets of books yeah. they weren't paying yeah. their taxes let's put it that way you know yeah. so what, when you look at Andy, who's the bar owner, he's already a criminal in that he is committing fraud. But most, I, I don't want to say most bar owners, but a significant amount of bar owners did exactly that. I'm sorry?
2: That's interesting that you mention that because it's almost like if if you're going to step into this world, you know, say you, the reader, step into the world of the book – or the city of Chicago in that time, if you're going to be straight, it's you're you're almost a dummy. You are a dummy for trying to play it straight. And there there's a passage in the book uh, uh, about a detective who's who's uh, has become infamous for for you know not taking bribes and and being on a crusade. Uh, you know, did you uh, do you still do you think of Chicago as a place where uh, it, it would be idiotic to try to 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 stay pure and noble.
1: I think uh, it's hard to. And I'm getting I'm really getting into politics here. I think it's hard to to be successful in capitalism without you know without and be be noble. I mean, the minute I think uh, there was a writer called Polanski, he, he was back- blacklisted in the 50s. He wrote a lot of noir films and um, earlier in his career, he was very successful, but he was blacklisted. And I saw an interview with him afterwards, I believe it was in the 80s, and um, he said, all crime fiction is about capitalism because capitalism is a crime. It has to exploit people. And I would say all fiction then set in uh, on, under capitalism is, a, is crime fiction because somebody has to be exploited in order for the characters to be living the lives they're living if they're affluent, for example. So, um, yeah, it, you know, you, I don't think you can be really, really noble and be in business and be really, really successful. I don't think it's possible because underneath it all, you have to exploit people in order to do it. Well, it's weird. And we've here seen now. that now.
2: Kind of together.
1: I mean, what you're calling essential workers. You know, we we have now found out who's essential. Right? We found out who's essential. I'm a healthcare worker. I'm essential to this economy, to this society. Grocery store clerks. Are essential to this this society. Yeah, truck uh, so drivers too. So we found too. out who's essential. I'm sorry. Truck drivers too. Truck drivers. You know, we found out who are the essential workers are, and we found out that they're they have been exploited, and they're still being exploited.
3: Yeah, and of course, so in the book you mentioned. So how noble
1: that? can anyone be that does that?
3: Well, you you know, we're talking about using two sets of books. You also mentioned that Andy has to pay a, a large number of bribes to people. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, so he he's not, maybe he's not paying tax to the government, but he certainly is paying street tax. Neighborhood tax. For sure. You know, oh, yeah. he, you know he, he's, he's paying all sorts of taxes. So, I mean, I, right. I think that I don't want readers to get the impression that, there wasn't a secondary taxation system involved. I mean, it's interesting oh, when sure. I, you know, when I moved here, I I tended bar at a a low bar up on the north side, an old man bar, <laughs> and that they had two sets of books. I guarantee you, I know they had right. two sets of books, and that was just how it was. But it was an old shot and a beer kind of place.
4: Yeah. Well, I remember Tumans. My they used to have the video poker. Like, yeah, this the was in the nineties, and one time my buddy won a bunch, and the guy was like, you know, he's like, you want singles or? Chris was like, "What? Yeah." The and they paid Hester. him out. He won like three hundred bucks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was right. there was
3: actually a shooting at the Diner Grill up on Irving Park because of that. Somebody tried to rob him, and the the guy behind the bar, uh, the guy behind the counter, I should say, lunch counter, took out a shotgun and, and shot oh, him. God. And uh, no charges were filed in that case, by the way. Oh wow! Um, so <laughs> that might might uh, ring true for some people. Um, Bob, I also want to talk to you a little bit. I mean, I under- am I correct in thinking that this book has been optioned for a play as well?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it hasn't been optioned. Uh, a friend of my, well, actually, he's become a friend of mine, Ed Blanchford. He was one of the co-founders of American Blues Theater. Mm-hmm. He contacted me after he read it. And he said, you know, this this would make a good play. Do you want to write it as a play? And we, we gave it a, a shot. We gave it a shot. And there... And I'll probably I might go back to it again, but uh, it's it is an ensemble piece. You can't do it with three or four people, you know, the way it's written. Yeah, right. And and also you lose something when you know it's, things are lost when you when you write it in a different uh, in and in, when you write it for the stage, you know, things are lost. So I might have to go back. We gave it a shot. I don't think it really worked, to be honest with you. Hmm. Well, um,
3: the reason I asked was because I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what drove you to write crime fiction in the first place. Uh, you know, you did mention Shelley Polonsky, who, of course, did write a number of famous noirs in the 1950s. And it struck me that you're kind of in that that milieu. Did Polansky write novels as
4: well or just movies?
3: He did. He wrote novels as well. Okay. I yeah. got to look him yeah. up. yeah work with Jacques Tenor, if I remember correctly off the top of my head. Sure.
1: Well, um, again, I, re- I I read Algren, and that that really affected me. Actually, I, I saw uh, The Man with the Golden Arm on the 3.30 movie. I think it was 12. And I saw that and I thought, wow, that's, that's really interesting and it was supposedly set in Chicago. So I got the book and I read the book and the book was very different than the film. And I thought, oh, I can write about the people I see around me. Well, if I look around me, what do I see? Well, I, you know, I see a lot of corruption. I see that there is, uh, you know, organized crime is around. I see, uh, I, I see people, you know, in economic dire straits. I also see a transitioning neighborhood. I see, you know, the, the systemic racism. I see all of that. And that's, that's all crime. <laughs> you know I mean? So it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's almost like, why, why did I do it? Well, because that's what I saw around me, you know, the old cliche, you write what you know. And, uh, and I pretty knew pretty much knew that my godfather was, uh, he, he, you know, this is, this is unbelievable, but my godfather was a gangster. So he, um, he was Irish, uh you know, you know irish american uh he he his, he made his living from gambling and he was associated with uh the outfit but he was also associated with the machine of the time the daily machine that's how he made his living you know and he was my father's best friend you know so uh you know i i my uncle lived upstairs for me he was a gambler you know i mean so there was always this kind of this kind of uh immersion in into this world um my My father wasn't a criminal, but he knew people who you could bribe. you know I, it, it was just so common. So I just grew up in that that sort of uh, environment, and uh, then I started seeing tragedies. <laughs> and and so you know, it's it is a crime fiction, but it's also a tragedy. No one ends up real well in this thing. And so that's what I've ended up writing, you know, and I, I guess that's the the short answer
4: yeah it, Jamie has lived in Bridgeport for a long time and Mike and I don't live in Bridgeport but I work here and and we also are in an unnamed recovery program and a lot of the guys we know even now their dads were in the mob they were we know one guy that was in the mob we know and then it was like on the other hand all the other guys' dads were cops like there's so mm-hmm. many of that and so it was like it's the, it was the same idea and I think that was real right. common here and, and I even heard a guy say the other night like he, he was in his 60s. He's like, yeah, when we graduated high school, no one talked about college. It was like we went into a city job, you know, and that was that, you know, and it was obviously, you know, the machine was running strong back then. And I, I just think it's interesting that these parallels still exist to some extent. Obviously, it's been watered down a great deal with the machine losing power and the mob mm-hmm. losing power and technology, I'm sure, hasn't helped. But I, I find the parallel that that still exists fascinating
2: uh, one thing I wanted to ask about was was uh, writing about place. How how long have you have you been in Pittsburgh, Bob? How long how long ago did you leave Chicago? And do you feel like um, you it, it was just so real being in this novel? Do you feel like you could write about Pittsburgh the way you wrote have written about Chicago?
1: Uh, I've been in Pittsburgh since ninety five, and I don't, I think I could write about Pittsburgh, but it would have to be, I don't know, I would have, it would have to be about the people, you know, the people that I know here now and so forth that it wouldn't be as, I don't think I'd be as immersed. It'd be more difficult, I think, but I might, I might write a book about healthcare (laughs) and that would be set in Pittsburgh, Um, but that'll, that'll be, uh, if I live long enough, that'll be a few years from now. But Chicago, because it was, you know, it was just so formative. It was part of my being for so long, and uh, it really comes across in the novel, man. Yeah, I, I just think you know, there's so many things that happened in the '60s and '70s while I was from the time I was a child to a young adult that happened. That it, I, I have a hard time finding something that is that is more compelling. Yeah. You know, yeah, and uh, the pandemic might be one of them. <laughs> might, be, might be, as compelling, but I'm not sure. Good.
3: Well, we've been speaking with the author Bob Hartley. He's got a brand new book out called North and Central. It's out from Tortoise Books. By the way, Bob, if you're in Pittsburgh, is Minio's Pizza still there?
1: It is. Yes, yes it is. What a there great when pizza place. I there when it a, is a very good what pizza? Place. Place. What a great
3: pizza place. I'm. I'm uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm one of those transplants to Chicago who cannot give up my East Coast roots and think that. Chicago pizza is second best, but uh, Minios in Pittsburgh is is definitely worth a shout out. The best slice uh, I've ever had was in New York. So oh yeah. yeah, best 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 slices are in New York. Let's be real, okay. uh, Bob. Before we let you go here, and, and I want to remind all, of course, all our listeners, we do give the author the last word. We're going to close with another excerpt from Bob's novel North and Central. But Bob, what do you got coming up next?
1: Uh, well, I am. I start. I wrote a, a one act play uh, about a. a couple of brothers who own a, a fairly well well actually no a very successful restaurant on the near north side of Chicago and they're about to sell it to a, a restaurant corporate a large restaurant corporation and uh, but again on the surface it looks really good but what you don't know is that um, they the they have a, a large outstanding loan to the outfit Hmm. Hmm. and so they're trying to sell the place and uh it's it's uh the the younger of the two is adopted and uh is he's he's a gay man and but they grew up on the west side so it's there so it flashes back it's the What's happening to them contemporarily, but also it it, it goes back to what they actually uh, what actually occurred in the old neighborhood, including that they had owned a restaurant prior in the old neighborhood, but as it transitioned, uh, they opted to um, commit arson for the insurance. Hmm. And so, um, on the, again on the surface, Things look real, look pretty good, but underneath it all, there's there's a lot of uh, conflict going on, including within themselves about what they did.
3: Sounds good. Well, once again, we've been speaking with Bob Hartley. His new book is called North and Central. It's out from Tortoise Books. It is available at all good libraries and bookstores. Bob, thanks so much for speaking with us today here on I ninety four.
4: Thank Next you, Bob.
1: Time. Well, well, thanks very much for having me. It was great. Thanks.
0: At last, we found it. It was across from Tony's house of beef, so we went in there to keep an eye on everything and make sure. But I knew we'd found it. Tony's looked like somebody would ate the Italian flag and threw it up. The chairs were green, tables red, and counters white. There were framed pictures with autographs. In the middle of them was one with Frank Sinatra with the note, Nice beef, Frank. Fat boy and I sat at a counter, eating sandwiches, drinking pop, and staring across the icy winter street at the currency exchange. It was south of the neighborhood, on the corner of Roosevelt and Central. It was wedged between the Cicero Bars and the Western Electric Plant. There was a big display on the window and a yellow sign that read, Checks Cashed. The roof was covered in razor wire. At shift change, a big chunk of workers went in. We went with them. The walls were tiled and had charts with fees. There were two cashier windows covered with bulletproof glass. Above each were the signs, No personal checks, and two IDs required for all paychecks, and this means you. Around the cashier windows was a wall of sheet metal. There was a curved steel slot at the bottom of each window just big enough to slip paperwork and cash through. In the center of each window was a metal circle with slots. Next to one of the windows was a steel door with two deadbolts. Somebody'd scratched a swear word into it, with an arrow pointing to the cashier. The cashier had his hair slicked back and wore reading glasses slid halfway down his nose. He had an old manual adding machine. He punched in numbers and pulled the crank. He pulled that thing so hard you'd have thought it would have told him to go to his mother. He chain smoked cigarettes and squashed the butts into a beanbag ashtray. Behind him was a safe that looked like it could fit through a doorway. We had two people in front of us, an old man and a woman with a kid. The woman paid her bills, gave the kid's arm a yank and walked out the door. The old man shoved his check through the slot. The cashier looked at the check and then at him. He pushed the check back through the slot. ID, he said. You know me. I.D. Son of a. The old man snatched up the check and walked out. When it was Fat Boy's turn, he bought some bus tokens and walked out, too. I bought a book of stamps and did the same. The cashier was a jerk, and I was glad. It made it easier to do what we were going to do. As we walked back to the car, Fat Boy said we'd never get in through that front. With that display window, anybody passing by will see us, he said. We could go through the roof, but it'd be hard. We'd have to cut through all that razor wire and the roof. Noisy. We waited in the car until after Jerkface closed up, then we drove around back. The alley was choked with snow and ice, but there was enough room to squeeze in a van. We could back it in and work out of sight. There was no alarm, but there was a thick, solid door with two bolt locks. Fatboy said he was sure on the other side of it there were at least two metal bars. But that don't matter, he laughed. Why, I said, it's a frickin' wood door. We headed back down central toward the neighborhood. Everything was winter. We pass blocks of apartment buildings, two flats, and bungalows that used to be stuffed with Italians, Poles, Germans, Irish. Years before, they jumped at offers from panic peddlers to sell before they invaded the neighborhood. People say sex sells. Screw that. Fear kicks sex's ass every time. It makes them give up their social clubs, churches, and schools. It makes them burn down family businesses for insurance money. It makes them sell their brick bungalows for three quarters what they're worth. It makes them run for it down the Eisenhower, those six lanes of concrete that daily cut through Columbus Park like a scar. It makes them buy overpriced, crappy frame ranch houses on streets with sidewalks that lead to nothing. It makes them spend the rest of their lives driving 20 minutes just to get a loaf of bread. It happened long ago in other neighborhoods, and it had started in ours. And I knew it wouldn't be long before everybody I knew was gone. I figured five years at the most, but it didn't matter. I'd leave them before they'd leave me. Right before the Lake Street L, we passed the Central YMCA. Fatboy said it was where he'd learned to swim. Every kid in the neighborhood learned there, I told him. The neighborhood, he said. He said nothing else for a while, just stared out at the bitter winter city. The side streets were full of snow and slush, but Central had been plowed and salted. We rolled through green after green, and finally when we stopped for a red light at Division, he spoke again. Where'd we learn this? What, I said. Taking advantage of people, why's it come so easy? The light changed. I watched the bricks of the buildings become a sheet of red. We're Americans, I said. Is Lumpen radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m central. This episode featured Bob Hartley, author of North and Central: Out Now from Tortoise. This episode originally aired on October 7, 2021. I94 is a Lumpen radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit LumpenRadio.com.